This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Elon Musk is not a very happy person right now, and that's because he is hemorrhaging money as we speak with major companies like IBM, Lionsgate, Apple, Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount Global, NBC Universal, Comcast, Sony, and Ubisoft all announcing that they are pulling ads from Twitter. Now, this advertiser boycott comes in response to Elon Musk endorsing a viciously anti-Semitic and xenophobic conspiracy theory from this person who wrote, Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. I'm deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest shit now about Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realizations that those hordes of minorities that support flooding their country don't exactly like them too much. You want the truth said to your face? There it is. Now, Elon Musk replied saying, you have said the actual truth. Now, I'm sure that most of you are already familiar with this deeply anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but if you're not, let me tell you who else promoted this. Quote, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. Screw your optics, I'm going in. Those were the last words posted online by Robert Bowers before he massacred worshippers at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. It was the single deadliest anti-Semitic attack in American history. In previous postings, Bowers explained the grievances that led him to commit mass murder. He shared meme after meme asserting that Jews were conspiring to flood the country with brown people in order to oppose and displace the white race quote open your eyes declared one quote it's the filthy evil jews bringing the filthy evil muslims into the country and as it turns out the world's richest man basically believes this too now to suggest that this was elon musk's mask off moment would be wrong because it's not the first time that he's endorsed conspiratorial white supremacist rhetoric for example in response to someone whining about the burning of robert e lee's confederate monument writing literally my ancestor we carry the lee names as a first middle in my family while i didn't need a direct insulting gesture to tell me that my kind is hated and many seek our extinction the implicit cues were strong enough i appreciate this image making it absolutely clear musk responded to to that saying they absolutely want your extinction now as of today after commenting that media matters is pure evil i'll tell you why he thinks this in a moment matt bender points out that he's now possibly dabbling in pizzagate conspiracy theories as well but to be clear the straw that broke the camel's back for advertisers was the anti-semitic tweet that he responded to endorsing that vicious conspiracy theory now he responded to accusations that he's anti-semitic by saying this past week there were hundreds of bogus media stories claiming that I am anti-Semitic. Nothing could be further from the truth. I wish only the best for humanity and a prosperous and exciting future for all. Wow, that's very convincing. I guess he's just going to deny that he endorsed an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Now, He's going a little bit further, to be fair, in order to prove that he's committed to combating anti-Semitism on the platform. He is cracking down on Palestinian political speech, not 
anti-Semitism. He writes, as I said earlier this week, decolonization from the river to the sea and similar euphemisms necessarily imply genocide. Clear calls for extreme violence are against our terms of service and will result in suspension. Now, after he made this announcement, from the river to the sea started trending almost immediately, much like Cis did after he called that a slur and subsequently tried to ban that word too. Now, I've talked about this before, but from the river to the sea isn't inherently anti-Semitic. When Palestinians use it, however, they're effectively calling for freedom from oppression and a peaceful coexistence between Arabs and Israelis. So the context does matter, even if this is a little bit more complicated. But let's just be really charitable to Elon Musk for a moment, even though we don't have to be. And let's assume that he just wants to be overly sensitive to any phrases that can be perceived as anti-Semitic after his little oopsie. Fine. Wouldn't you take it a step further and ban all of the Nazis and white supremacists on your platform? Isn't that the most effective way to eliminate anti-Semitism from Twitter? Well, maybe, but these are the same people who also pay him $8 a month to get an algorithmic boost, which is why we're all seeing more Nazism and white supremacy and transphobia. So if he were to ban these folks who are paying them money, he's taking money out of his own pocket. But because he won't take action against actual anti-Semitism and because he engages in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories himself, that's why advertisers are pulling out, because he's very clearly not committed to combating anti-Semitism. But the story somehow gets even stupider, because Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, actually applauded Elon Musk for this move, saying, This is an important and welcome move by Elon Musk. I appreciate his leadership in fighting hate. Now, I just want to pause for a moment and appreciate the absurdity of this situation. The head of the ADL is praising Elon Musk, of all people, for his leadership in fighting hate on Twitter of all places in 2023, in November of 2023. <sighs> Feels like we're living in the upside down, like nothing is real because it's too stupid to be believable. Now, it's not like Jonathan Greenblatt is unaware of Elon Musk's previous endorsement of a vicious anti-Semitic conspiracy theory because a day earlier, he literally condemned it, writing on Twitter, at a time when anti-Semitism is exploding in America and surging around the world, it is indisputably dangerous to use one's influence to validate and promote anti-Semitic theories. So according to the ADL, you can validate an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory one day, but the very next day, literally, you can be hailed for your leadership in fighting hate make it make sense. It's impossible. Now, this isn't necessarily too surprising considering the ADL's sudden desire to, I guess, destroy their credibility or what's left of it, all in an effort to protect Israel no matter what. So the organization has been focused on defaming student supporters of Palestinian human rights and painting them as terrorist sympathizers while urging colleges to investigate them. But meanwhile, they're giving actual stochastic terrorists like Chaya Raichik a pass by temporarily removing her from their glossary of extremism and hate after she threatened to sue them. Now, at the time that I record this video, they still haven't reinstated her. And this is also bizarre to me because it seems as if the ADL is currently spending more time going after student protesters than actual Nazis and actual hate mongers. And they're even willing to give Elon Musk a pass after he literally, just last week, spread a vicious anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that was used by the shooter that murdered people at the Tree of Life synagogue. 
But so long as Elon Musk is signaling support for Israel by censoring pro-Palestinian speech, I guess that he's acceptable by the standards of the ADL now. Just such a deeply unserious organization, which is sad because they do do some good work. But I mean, this recent turn is just embarrassing because if you are applauding Elon Musk of all people after he said that, then you have no credibility because that is dangerous as they recognized. Now, in addition to doubling down on censorship on Twitter, Elon Musk is trying to silence media matters too by threatening them with a thermonuclear lawsuit because he believes they're threatening free speech on Twitter by manipulating advertisers into fleeing by documenting the rise of hate speech on the platform. Now, he ironically ends this long post by saying stand with X to protect free speech, which is so fucking funny. Now, it's true that Media Matters does frequently write about the proliferation of hate speech on Twitter, but let's not forget forget that this latest round of advertiser boycotts is specifically because of Elon Musk's own words, not the hate that he's allowing on the platform. And furthermore, he's trying to silence Media Matters with legal intimidation. He is the one threatening free speech, not Media Matters. They're just saying what's happening. Now, he said he was going to file a lawsuit on Monday. It's now Monday, and at the time that I record this video, still no lawsuit, but we'll have to wait and see. However, some of his uh, right-wing buddies are trying to come to the rescue and bail him out amid this latest round of advertiser boycotts. For example, the Babylon Bee CEO, Seth Dillon, pledged $250,000 in advertising on Twitter, and Tim Pool pledged another $250,000 after Seth Dillon did. But that's not all, because Matt Bender of Mashable reports soon more right-wing media figures and companies followed with pledges of their own, albeit much less than the amounts that Dylan and Paul were promising. Political commentator Benny Johnson, for example, pledged $50,000 in ad spending. Other right-wing creators like The Quartering, Donut Operator, Gavin McInnes, and Elijah Schaefer pledged smaller amounts ranging from $2,500 to $40,000. The controversial Andrew Tate, a Manosphere influencer who has previously been charged with rape and human trafficking, pledged the largest amount, saying he'd give Musk $1 million per month without even running ads for his own endeavors. As of publishing, a total of eight right-wing media figures and groups have pledged $1,627,500 in ad buys on X. That includes Tate's possibly unserious offer. In addition, the majority of those pledges are over the course of multiple months, so that amount is not per month. But get this, to compare to the amount X has lost from fleeing advertisers, Apple alone reportedly spends more than $100 million per year on X ads. Looking at it more broadly, advertisers made up 90% of the $5.1 that then-Twitter made in the year before Musk took over. Now, the reason why Bender thinks that Andrew Tate's pledge is unserious is because Romanian authorities said that he only had about $10 million in assets, and I say only, but that's still a lot, meaning that if he actually held true to this, he would give away the entirety of his wealth within a year. So obviously, I don't think that he's really committing to this. He's just virtue signaling for clout. But just stop for a moment and think about how pathetic these right-wing bootlickers are. They are all willing to donate money to a platform owned by the richest man on the planet, all in the name of supporting free speech after he's demonstrated time and again that he's not actually committed to free speech. I mean, it'd be humorous if it wasn't so fucking pathetic. But listen, if you actually do care about free speech, and you should, there are much better places that you can put your money into. Free speech to Elon Musk literally just means free speech for white supremacists, transphobes, and Nazis. He isn't actually committed to protecting free speech. I think time and again, he has proven that. His actions indicate that that is the extent 
of his commitment to free speech, letting Nazis say what they want on the platform and get boosted by the algorithm. But fortunately for these dumbass grifters, that really is the only free speech that I think they care about. So I guess it works for them. Either way, I hope that the advertisers continue to flee, but understand that this is not the first time that advertisers have fled Twitter in mass. And I'm assuming that they will quietly resume advertising in a month or so once this all blows over until Elon Musk has another oopsie and they all collectively announce another pause from advertising. Listen, the true victory will be these advertisers leaving Twitter permanently. And I think that a sustained level of public shaming is necessary in order to make that a reality. But until then, we can at least enjoy the schadenfreude of the world's richest man losing more money because of his own hate and stupidity. Last week, major companies announced that they were pulling advertisements from Twitter following Elon Musk's endorsement of this viciously anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, where a Twitter user claims that white-hating Jewish people are facilitating the great replacement of whites by flooding countries with immigrants. Now, as you can see, Musk responded saying, you have said the actual truth. Now, this is the same conspiracy theory, for those who don't know, that was echoed by the Tree of Life synagogue shooter. And Elon Musk agrees with him, apparently. Now, on top of that, Elon Musk has unbanned Holocaust-denying Nazis, and he still refuses to remove Nazis like this one, who has a literal transphobic slur in their Twitter handle, along with 1488. And, I mean, all of this has been known for a long time about Elon Musk. To be charitable, his sympathy towards Nazis and white supremacists is kind of an open secret because he, he constantly communicates with them. But, him endorsing that conspiracy theory was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back because it was one of the few instances where there was no room for interpretation. There's no plausible deniability that you have to take it at face value because he's just saying it. He went mask off. He said the quiet part loud. And as a result, advertisers couldn't justify spending money on Twitter and they left. And now he's in full on damage control mode in a shameless effort to lure back Twitter's advertisers. And one of the first things that he did was censor pro-Palestine speech on Twitter. Now for ADL president, Jonathan Greenblatt, that was all he needed to do because he praised Musk for his quote, leadership in fighting hate just one day after acknowledging that Musk endorsed this despicable anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Oh, and Greenblatt then went on to thank UTA for firing Susan Sarandon after he hailed Musk as a leader. You can't make this shit up, folks. Now, Greenblatt's decision to embrace Musk, all because he's censoring certain phrases, has actually pissed off some people within the ADL, and I think rightfully so. The Rolling Stone reports, Ellie Pariser, the founder of the progressive website MoveOn.org and a member of the ADL's tech advisory board, tells Rolling Stone he found Greenblatt's decision to applaud Musk for banning the terms both morally wrong and disastrously counterproductive. Censorship of these phrases will not reduce anti-Semitism, Pariser says, especially while Musk himself, one of the most popular users on the platform continues to engage with and boost it. Pariser tells Rolling Stone that while he has historically supported the ADL's work against anti-Semitism and hate speech, unless the organization changes course, I plan to step down from the tech advisory board. He noted, however, that if the ADL acknowledged it had made a big mistake and course corrected, he would keep his place on the board. Though some ADL advisory board members who spoke with Rolling Stone continue to support Greenblatt, others have raised questions about his leadership, saying that the CEO's 
hardline stance on defending the Israeli government's actions in Gaza, as well as Greenblatt's history of aligning himself with an individual known for espousing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, are eroding the organization's credibility. And I think that's important. The ADL has done good work in the past, so I want them to succeed, but Greenblatt here is undermining them by going to bat for the actions of the Israeli government, right? And I think that what's happening with the ADL is a microcosm of a bigger thing that we're seeing with Israel's defenders. If support for Israel's government automatically gets all of your accusations of anti-Semitism erased like that, it tells you a lot about the motivations of these folks, doesn't it? It suggests that Israel's defenders are only invoking anti-Semitism to shut down criticism of Israel. And this is a very dangerous game to play because anti-Semitism is very real. And unfortunately, it's on the rise around the world and in the United States. And conflating criticism of Israel's government with bigotry against the Jewish people is deeply dangerous because Israel is a government. And we are allowed to criticize governments without having that criticism be conflated with the people of that government. Nobody questions whether or not we're Islamophobic for condemning Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen. Nobody cries racism for condemning corrupt warlords in sub-Saharan Africa, nor should they. But since Israel's genocide in Gaza is indefensible, the go-to tactic is to just shut down criticism altogether with cynical accusations of anti-Semitism. And if you're Jewish and you condemn the actions of the Israeli government, they'll just label you a self-hating Jewish person. We've seen this happen with Naomi Klein, Bernie Sanders, and it's just, it's, it's gross because in other words, it means that any and all criticisms of Israel are illegitimate by default. But if you unconditionally support Israel, their defenders will give you a pass, even if you say the most horrific anti-Semitism imaginable as Elon Musk did. And it's not just Elon Musk. Pastor John Hagee was embraced at the March for Israel demonstration despite blaming Jewish people for the Holocaust and claiming that Hitler was sent by God. And now we're seeing the same thing happen where Elon Musk, who blamed Jewish people, not Israel, for white replacement, is all of a sudden embraced by Israel's defenders because he's signaling support for Israel's genocide in Gaza. In fact, he's even being welcomed in Israel. The New York Times reports, Elon Musk traveled to Israel to meet Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday touring the scene of a Hamas attack in a visit that appeared aimed at calming the outcry over his endorsement of an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on X, the social media platform he owns. On Tuesday, after arriving in Israel, Mr. Musk wrote on X that actions speak louder than words. Wearing a flak jacket, he toured Kafar Aza, an Israeli kibbutz, where dozens of people were killed during the Hamas attack on October 7th. Now, I find this incredibly fucking gross. Does anyone actually believe that Elon Musk has had a change of heart in the week since he blamed Jewish people for white replacement? Of course not. Nobody believes that. Netanyahu doesn't believe that. But Netanyahu is giving cover to this anti-Semite specifically because Musk has the power to control the flow of information on Twitter, and that could be an invaluable asset to Israel's war propaganda effort. And Netanyahu is already facing massive backlash in Israel for a number of reasons. He's facing corruption charges, and 76% of Israelis think he should resign. And protesters even chanted jail now outside of his home earlier this month, largely because they blame him for the the security failure that allowed the Hamas attack on 10-7.
And once again, he's now being criticized over this publicity stunt with Elon Musk. For example, Haaretz writer Ben Samuels slammed Netanyahu for giving Musk a hero's welcome, writing, Israel's repulsive embrace of Elon Musk is a cynical betrayal of Jews dead and alive. Welcoming such a toxic mogul with open arms and taking him around sites of a massacre that has been belittled, demeaned, and denied on his watch should be a stain on Netanyahu's legacy. And also, Esther Solomon, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz, tweeted, blatant anti-Semite and publisher of anti-Semitism, Elon Musk, should be persona non grata in Israel. Instead, Netanyahu, plumbing new depths of amoral sycophancy, gives him a PR visit to the kibbutzim devastated by Hamas. Profane, venal, bilious, both of them. And they're right to be pissed off. This man endorsed an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that is so vile it was literally used to justify the slaughter of innocent Jewish people. But now Netanyahu is giving him cover and uh, taking them on a tour because it's politically expedient, because Elon Musk could be a valuable asset to him in his genocide against Gazans. It's just so disgusting. And Elon Musk is really going all in on his embrace of Israel's war propaganda. And I say this because during a Twitter spaces with Netanyahu, Musk seemingly agreed with the dumbest lies that Netanyahu used to manufacture consent for his genocide in Gaza. Case in point. Uh, the one thing you cannot do is give immunity to the terrorists because they're hiding among civilians. Because if you give them immunity, everybody says they shouldn't be doing this. But effectively, nobody's willing to take the action to make sure that this is not an effective tactic. Because if it is, it'll repeat itself again yes. and again and again. By the way, Hamas says we're going to do it again and again. But it's not only against Israel that they'll do it. This will spread very quickly throughout the Middle East and peril the entire region. From there, they'll go to Europe. And from there, they'll also go elsewhere to America, whom they call the great Satan. We're just a little Satan. <laughs> yeah, yes. America is so, the great Satan. America is the great Satan. And this is an Iranian <laughs> axis. Yes, 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 yes. So it's same. Iran, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis, and Hamas. Yes. It's all part of that same axis that goes against Israel, the United States, uh, free civilization, and the modern Arab states. We're all on one side. They're on the other side. You have, we have uh, first a mission to destroy Hamas. Nothing's going to stop that because if you want peace, destroy Hamas. If you want security, destroy Hamas. If you want a better life for the Palestinians in Gaza who've been hijacked uh, by Hamas, destroy Hamas. Uh, all of that is a precursor to the question that you asked. You first have to get rid of the poisonous regime, uh, as you did in Germany, as you did in Japan yeah. uh, in World War II. These were two... There's no choice. There's no choice. Uh, so uh, that, that's this, a prerequisite. Yes. Listening to that makes it very clear as to why Netanyahu is doing this. 1.2 million people on Twitter heard the Israeli prime minister fearmonger about Hamas coming to America because they're supposedly hell-bent on global domination just like the Nazis. I mean, this is why Netanyahu felt the need to give Elon Musk a pass for his anti-Semitism. That's why because he's useful. But what's especially gross is these self-interested assholes are both performing for everyone. And I think it's obvious to see that, but a lot of people won't see through their opportunism. Musk, for example, only cares about money and wants to get advertisers back on Twitter and possibly sell Starlink to Israel as well, and maybe to Gaza if Israel approves, of course, but it's definitely not an occupation, don't call it that. And when it comes to Netanyahu, he only cares about his imperialist and neoconservative ambitions, but I mean, they're both pretending to care about people when they don't. It's all an act. It's theater. 
Now, Jewish activist and writer Joshua P. Hill explained in a substack published on October 29th how this game that's being played by Zionists like Netanyahu literally endangers Jewish people around the world. And here's what he says. It is easy to denounce every anti-Semitic attack that has come in the wake of Israel's relentless and genocidal attack on Gaza. I condemn them all. I want my family and my friends to be safe. I want to be safe. And so I also condemn the decades-long Zionist effort to claim my entire religion and claim my entire people. Judaism is a religion, a culture, and in many ways, an ethnicity. Zionism is a political and colonial project. In equating them, the state of Israel and Zionist propagandists tie my people to their violence. They link us to their atrocities in the minds of millions. And for them, that is just one of the acceptable prices worth paying in their efforts to get the world to side with their program of ethnic cleansing, occupation, and apartheid. Now, I do not believe that our safety is really the priority of the Zionist government. They work overtime to tie my people, our entire religion, to their violent project in the eyes of the world, no matter the harm and backlash this contributes to. They force Zionist Jews everywhere into the arms of the right, into the arms of people who couldn't care less about us. Exactly. People like Elon Musk, for example. Now, I would highly encourage you to read the entire column. I'll link to it down below because he makes a lot of really important points. And I think that his voice is important here in this discussion. But I think this is why it's important to reiterate again that Jewish people are not responsible for the actions of the Israeli government in the same way that Gazans aren't responsible for the actions of Hamas. Again, people are people and governments are governments. So if you say that it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel's indiscriminate bombing campaign in Gaza, you are necessarily ascribing culpability to Jewish people who have nothing to do with those atrocities. And I think that that conflation and generalization of all Jewish people with Israel is anti-Semitism. It's almost an incitement of hatred and violence against these people who have nothing to do with what the government of Israel is doing. People are not monolithic. Israeli citizens don't even like Netanyahu, and governments often don't have the same interests as their people. So it is absolutely absurd to me to say that if you criticize what Israel is doing, you are anti-Semitic. But defenders of Israel don't care. They'll gladly conflate any and all criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism because it's a tactic that works. That's why they do it. But it's disgusting and a very dangerous game to play, which is why so many Jewish people are speaking out and saying, not in our name. Don't pretend like you're doing this to protect us. You don't speak for us. Now, with that being said, it is important to point out that there are instances where actual anti-Semites will try to cloak their anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism or criticisms of Israel, and we should call that out when we see it. For example, Candace Owens, she's a good example of this, who lately is criticizing Israel, but at the same time, last year she was defending Kanye West when he was going on his pro-Hitler rants. So it's good to acknowledge that there are bad faith people who are using this as an opportunity to gin up anti-Semitism, and they're trying to do that under the pretense of criticizing Israel. And it's also important to point out that non-Jewish people should never ever dismiss the seriousness or reality of anti-Semitism just because it's disingenuously weaponized by Israel's defenders. Because anti-Semitism, again, is very real, and I think we all have a responsibility to combat it whenever we see it. And one way to combat it is to not let anti-Semites like Elon Musk get a pass after endorsing one of the most despicable anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in existence. I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. It says it bans classroom instruction on sexual identity and gender orientation. For who? For, for, for grades pre-K through three.
So five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. After Florida Governor Ron DeSantis emphatically insisted his don't say gay law only applied to grades three and under, he then expanded it through grade 12 a little more than a year after it was signed into law. In other words, it was never really about protecting kids, but that's a lie that he had to tell people in order to manufacture support for it. And it was a lie that he pushed really hard. I can just say, as the parent of three kids that are age five and under, Thank you for letting me and my wife be able to send our kids to kindergarten without them being sexualized. Now, to be clear, when he talks about the sexualization of children, he is referring specifically to teachers who might indirectly alert students to the existence of queer people by mentioning a student who has two moms, for example, or by referencing their same-sex spouse. And that is exactly what ended up happening in practice. Some teachers in certain counties were instructed to remove pictures of their same-sex spouses from their desks and not wear rainbow lanyards that were given to them by the actual school district who instructed them to not wear them in order to to remain compliant with the law. Now, was this the actual requirement of the law? Well, nobody really knows due to its vague wording, but the goal here was to chill any and all LGBTQ plus speech, and that's unquestionably the effect that it had. Now, earlier this year, a teacher actually resigned after the district launched an investigation into her because she dared to show her fifth grade class a Disney movie. And this Disney movie was controversial because it featured a gay character for like two seconds. Now, when you take into account that, along with the racist curriculum mandated in Florida, abuse from conservative parents, and low salaries, it's no wonder why Florida is experiencing one of the worst teacher shortages in the country. But despite the brazen unconstitutionality of Don't Say Gay, as well as the problems that it caused in Florida classrooms, dozens of states proposed their own versions of the law. And now, to make matters worse, Don't Say Gay could be coming to workplaces in Florida, too. Because, as Samantha Rydell reports, not content to only target transgender students and staff during school hours, a Florida Republican introduced a state bill this week that would effectively expand Governor Ron DeSantis's infamous Don't Say Gay rules to include government workplaces and nonprofits. How Bill 599, introduced on Tuesday by freshman Representative Ryan Chamberlain, makes sweeping changes to Florida employment statutes to declare that a person's sex is an immutable biological trait. The bill would prohibit government employees or contractors from being compelled to use a person's pronouns if those pronouns do not correspond to his or her sex. It would also bar employers from asking any worker to state their own pronouns. Even more draconian, the bill would prevent trans employees from sharing their pronouns at all. Under the proposed law, employees and contractors cannot provide to an employer his or her preferred personal title or pronouns if, again, they do not match the worker's assigned sex. Chamberlain's bill would also ban any tax-exempt nonprofit or employer that receives state funds from requiring any training, instruction, or other activity on sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Instead, the bill would establish non-discrimination protections for what it calls deeply held biology-based beliefs, a new spin on religious exemptions that are commonplace in other anti-LGBTQ bills and conservative talking points. So they are effectively trying to mandate the misgendering of trans people in the workplace. Now, you're only allowed to state your pronouns according to the wording of this if they match your assigned sex. But I mean, if you're a trans person and you just say your pronouns anyway, and then you declare that those pronouns match your assigned sex at birth, what are they going to do? Check your genitals. It's unenforceable. 
it's draconian, but the whole point of this is to chill speech. It's to push queer people, trans people in particular, back into the closet so that way they can have their little Christian nationalist utopia without queer people. That's what they want to do. Now, the good news is that Florida's legislature is currently out of session, so this legislation probably won't even be considered until March of next year. So there's plenty of time between now and then to organize against it. But the bad news is that organization might be futile because Florida does not care about what its residents want, and this has the chance of passing. And if this passes, it could literally destroy LGBTQ plus nonprofits in Florida who actually do good work. For example, Florida lawmaker Anna Eskamani warns that this could effectively mean that organizations like Equality Florida would be banned from existing, which is the organization, by the way, that issued a travel advisory over Florida's hostility towards queer people. So, I mean, the lesson here is that this was never about parental rights or protecting children. And they're not even pretending that's the case anymore when it comes to the don't say gay law. What's the excuse for this? Are we protecting adults from the existence of queer people? Like, why would you try to justify this? What's the excuse? Oh, well, it's because we're protecting deeply held biology-based beliefs. What? They're not even using the religion excuse anymore. So what is the point? They just want to be assholes to queer people. They just want to ban trans people out of existence. And this facilitates that end goal. Now, when it comes to other anti-LGBTQ plus policies that they support, conservatives still sometimes have to pretend that it is indeed about the kids until their cause reaches majority support. Now, we've seen this with gender-affirming care bans. Earlier this year, Republicans in Kansas, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Texas all introduced bans on gender-affirming care for adults until the age of 26. Now, earlier this year, Florida effectively banned gender-affirming care for adults by prohibiting nurse practitioners from administering it, meaning that 80% of trans adults who received care from nurse practitioners could no longer have access to that care. Now, Michael Knowles, who infamously said that he wants to eradicate transgenderism, tweeted an article from The Telegraph titled, Parents of Transgender Teenager Lose Bid to Stop Mastectomy. And he adds, The sad inevitable consequence of not eradicating transgender ideology from public life entirely. Yeah, so Michael Knowles is basically giving away the game here. Remember a couple of minutes when I rhetorically asked, why would they do this? What's the justification? Well, that's the justification. Don't say gay in the classrooms and the workplace facilitates the eradication of trans people from public life. Now, the excuse here that Michael Knowles is inadvertently pushing is, well, you see, we can protect kids from gender ideology by not only banning gender affirming care for trans youth, but by also banning it for adults too. See, restricting access to gender affirming care protects kids because if they see that trans adults exist, then they might want to hop on that bandwagon. And now parents can't even stop their teens from transitioning. Except the article that he shared does not demonstrate the point that he's trying to make. If you read the article, it involves a 17-year-old who was going to turn 18 within days of the hearing, so the injunction was effectively useless. And furthermore, the teen in question claimed that their parents were emotionally abusive and told them that LGBTQ normalization in the UK was part of a depopulation effort. In other words, they were accusing their own child of being part of some conspiracy to depopulate the UK. 
So, no, I'm sorry, I don't think that these conspiracy-brained abusers should be able to prevent their adult child from getting the care that their doctor approved of. Now, on Twitter, journalist Aaron Reed pointed this out and explained, this is what they want, by the way, parent vetoes of trans adults getting care. And she is absolutely correct. Look, they already want to ban adults from transitioning, so if they can somehow incorporate a character witness system into gender-affirming care so transphobic parents can stop their adult children from getting the care they're old enough to consent to, well, they'll do that too. It's because it's really difficult legally to just ban gender-affirming care for adults outright. It's even difficult to do it for children. So if they can find some sort of a legal loophole, that's what they're going to try to do. It's why the don't say gay law is so vague, right? You can't say you're not allowed to talk about queer people existing because that's unconstitutional. It violates the First Amendment. And I'd argue that the don't say gay law still violates the First Amendment. But what they try to do is create policies that have an effect while not directly wording it in that way so as to not be struck down by courts. But remember, these attacks on gender affirming care all started with Think of the Children, just like Florida's Don't Say Gay Law. And now look where we are. This is how it always goes. So in conclusion, whenever conservatives justify discrimination against marginalized groups by feigning concern over children, you should view that as a red flag because they are literally lying to you. They don't actually care about protecting children because if they did, they would do more things to protect children, like support more gun safety laws or school lunch programs to stop children from going hungry. This is about them imposing their fascistic Christian nationalist worldview on all of us. And this is all part of a broader goal to eradicate trans people from existence, public life, as they call it. And um, this is what that looks like. This is the plan in action. And it's time for Americans to wake up and stop falling for the concern trolling over kids because conservatives don't care about kids. And this is really the oldest trick in the book. So by now, everyone should know it's not about the kids. It's about their bigotry. Well, it seems like the fellows over at the Daily Wire are at it again because after the success of their last film, Terror on the Prairie, which streamed exclusively on the Daily Wire Plus and raked in a total of $13,115 at box offices worldwide, they're now releasing a comedy called Lady Ballers about dudes who decide to play in women's sports by pretending to be women. And I think that the screenshot behind me kind of tells you everything you need to know about the plot. It's a movie based on the one joke that conservatives have. Now, uh, this movie features cameos from Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro's female doppelganger, Brett Cooper, and Michael Knowles, Matt Walsh and Drag, the old guy from The Daily Wire, Jeremy Boring, the CEO of The Daily Wire, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, and even Riley Gaines. Now, for those of you who don't know, Riley Gaines is the NCAA swimmer who tied for fifth place with Leah Thomas, a trans woman, and even though four other cis women beat her she has managed to turn her being a sore loser into an entire career and she's not necessarily mad at the cis women who beat her she's specifically mad at the trans woman who she tied with but now she's starring in a movie where she'll be able to live out her fantasy maybe as winner or runner-up who knows we'll have to wait and see now it might seem weird that the daily wire made a movie and just Put themselves in the movie but i can assure you that they all have extensive acting experience for example here's a role that michael knowles played before he became a conservative commentator that was wow uh thanks have you not done it with men? mind if we don't get into that oh yeah sure sure it's uh 
That's that's not a lot, is it? Can I get a towel? You uh, want my number? Um, yeah, uh, sure. Riveting. You know, it's really hard to understand why his acting career never took off. Now, I don't think that I could play the full trailer due to copyrighted music that it contains, but I will link to it down below if you want to watch the full thing. But I do have to play at least a brief clip specifically of Ted Cruz's cameo because I have questions. Excuse me. Are these seats open? <laughs> ne never mind. I don't get it. What's the joke? I don't... <laughs> I don't know why they would include this in the trailer where they're presumably trying to gin up excitement to get people to watch the movie. I mean, if you are trying to generate some level of excitement over cameos, one, I don't think that Ted Cruz is going to do the trick. And two, just like tease the cameo, say featuring cameos from all these conservative dickheads, don't put Ted Cruz in the trailer when there's like no reason for that part like I, i'm baffled by some of the things that they included in this trailer but um, i've got to say that the movie does look funny but not for the reasons they hoped right i think it looks funny because of how bad it's going to be the writing specifically looks like ass but i want to get to the plot so you can kind of understand what I mean since I can't show you the trailer. So the film is about trans people and how they uh, have transformed sports and what they're calling the most triggering comedy of the year. And the Daily Beast explains that it's about a desperate basketball coach played by Daily Wire co-founder Jeremy Boring and he hatches an idea to enter his hapless male team in a women's competition. This is the way the world is now, he says. My eight-year-old daughter told me about it. In the next scene, said daughter is delivering a conservative's parody of gender politics to the team so a guy can become a girl with no physical changes at all boring asks her oh that's called being gender fluid a tiny blonde child actor answers smiling so i can be a woman on the court and a man in the bedroom nice a dumb jock player cheers the rest of the trailer is largely shots of men body slamming women in slow motion to illustrate of course just how much stronger and more powerful they are i feel like this literally could have been written by a 12 year old but my favorite part about this is how it's being pitched this is supposedly a bold edgy comedy that's never been attempted before because hollywood is too afraid so jeremy boring tweeted this out hollywood won't make a movie about how laughably absurd it is that we now allow grown men to call themselves women and then dominate women's sports so we did Except that's not true at all. Parker Molloy provided multiple examples of other movies that have attempted this. And this movie in particular is basically a transphobic ripoff of Joanna Man, which is about a professional basketball player who dresses up as a woman and joins the women's team after he gets dropped from the men's team. And it was not good at the time because once the absurdity of man pretends to be woman wears off, you kind of get bored. So you need different jokes to keep it entertaining. And the writing of that movie wasn't even good so the daily wire is basically making an entire film 
using the absurdity of, oh my God, a man competing in a woman's team and then trying to use dick and ball jokes to carry them throughout the film. But it's going to get tiring even for your most avid supporters if you don't switch it up. And no, I don't have the confidence that they're going to be able to competently write to make it actually funny or even enjoyable for the people who are transphobic and will enthusiastically watch this. But they're pretending like they're breaking new ground when this was already done in the fucking 2000s or the 90s. And a lot of people pointed this out and they mocked this film relentlessly as a result because it lacks creativity and it's just fucking stupid. For example, Cody Johnston pointed out all the best comedies stem from political commentators being absolutely furious. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's going to be great. Mia Moore says this movie is so cooked because even the broiest man dresses as a woman in hijinks and Sue movies ended with the men learning a lesson about how much harder it is being a woman and dealing with misogyny. And this movie can't do that because conservatives are incapable of empathy. Dr. Mike Crisis says, this is Joanna Man Erasure. Proof you can give conservatives $10 million and it's still impossible for them to write a joke. You know it's going to be good because they cast their CEO as the main character. <laughs> they made an entire movie on their one joke. Damn, they got like everybody who wants to inspect your teen's genitals in the same movie. Now look, to be fair, some people were enthusiastic about the film. Roseanne Barr, for example, asks when and where she can see it. Although if she watched the full trailer, they would tell you it's on the Daily Wire plus but uh, apparently she didn't watch till the end which tells me that um yeah she definitely wants to see it and tim pool says lol omg so it got the coveted tim pool endorsement so to be fair you had a lot of people mocking it but then again there were a lot of conservative sycophants who happened to hate trans people who uh seemed pretty enthusiastic about seeing conservatives say the one joke that they have again and again and again but in reality the goal is of this movie is not to make people laugh. That might be their secondary goal, but it's not why this movie was created. The Daily Wire does not have billionaire funders so that way they can entertain people and make them laugh. The goal is to disseminate propaganda. The movie was created by and for transphobes, specifically to sell people this caricature of trans people in order to generate transphobic beliefs. That's the goal, not comedy, hence the shit writing. Now, the extent to which they're going to be able to sell audiences on this film is debatable considering the fact that this is only going to be uh given to their pre-existing audience as far as i know it's just going to be a daily wire plus exclusive so they might just be preaching to the choir here but ideally they want you to watch this film and see trans people through their transphobic lens and fear-mongering about trans athletes is an effective way to persuade normies that trans people do pose a danger in at least a minimal sense i mean if conservatives can't get normies to believe that trans people are bathroom predators trying to trans the kids maybe they can convince them that trans individuals at least pose a danger to female athletes and once you accept that premise once you accept any small transphobic premise maybe you'll be open to other transphobic ideas and that's the goal they try to hook you based on an outrageous lie but it is a lie they are lying to you this is a propaganda film and the danger isn't trans athletes. The danger is the transphobia itself. And fear-mongering over trans athletes has led to harassment even against cis athletes who bigots perceive to be trans. Now, on June 14th of this year, I did a video talking about a nine-year-old girl from Kelowna who was accosted at a track meet by an adult because she was suspected of being trans due to her pixie haircut. 
Now, in that same video, we talked about trans athletes more generally speaking, and I demonstrated how this is one of the most sensationalized issues ever. And I want to revisit that because it's relevant again, and I'm not just going to say the same thing again. I already did the video, so I'm going to post a clip of that, a long clip, but an important clip nonetheless in this video so you can see specifically what conservatives are doing uh, when it comes to this issue. Because when you dive into the details and you look at the numbers and the facts, it doesn't actually lend credence to the claims that they're making against trans people. Now, there's this caricature about trans people that the right has created, specifically when it comes to trans people in sports, which probably explains the hypersensitivity of the jackass in this particular story. But I mean, there's this caricature where conservatives believe that there's this insecure man who can't athletically compete with the other men so he chooses to identify as a woman specifically so he can dominate them in some sport and this transphobic trope has been reinforced in pop culture on shows like south park but in actuality this isn't a thing that is happening Yet, the hysteria has led to trans and cis people getting harassed and trans students being excluded from school sports. Now, if this problem was so widespread with trans people just dominating female sports, then you would think that there'd be a plethora of examples of trans middle and high schoolers just crushing the competition, right? But in 2021, when the Associated Press reached out to two dozen conservative politicians who sponsored legislation banning trans girls from school sports in 20 different states, guess what they found? Quote, in almost every case, sponsors cannot cite a single instance in their own state or region where such participation has caused problems. And get this, GOP lawmakers in states like South Carolina and Tennessee even admitted that there might not even be a single transgender athlete in their entire state. But they justified this legislation by calling it proactive because they care about women's sports and little girls sports. Yeah, very interesting. You know, now, you would think that they'd have plenty of examples given how much time they spend focusing on this issue, but they couldn't cite a single example. These are the people writing the legislation. Isn't that interesting? Now, there's a reason why they can't cite a single example. And as Newsweek explains, privacy laws make it tough to identify the exact number of transgender athletes competing in public school sports. But researcher and medical physicist Joanna Harper estimates that the number can't exceed 100 nationwide. Now, to be clear, that's at the college level. It's just an estimate, but the number is very small. But what about K through 12? Well, Harvard Law's Alejandro Carballo, who's been tracking anti-trans legislation now for years, estimates that there is only 50 trans athletes in schools nationwide. Furthermore, Newsweek continues, Jillian Brandstetter, a spokesperson for the American Civil Liberties Union, said the number of transgender athletes isn't comprehensive, but she's also certain it's a very small portion of the nation's population. Brandstetter told Newsweek that Save Women's Sports, an organization advocating for banning transgender athletes from competing in girls' sports, identified only five transgender athletes competing on girls' teams in school sports for grades K through 12. Now, I want to stress that the organization, the main organization dedicated to advocating that trans girls should be banned from playing school sports can name just five trans athletes competing on girls teams. It's a big country and all they could find 
Just five examples. In other words, there are more Americans who were literally bitten by a shark than there are trans athletes at the K through 12 level. In fact, the total number of trans athletes barely surpasses the average number of people struck by lightning every single year, which is 28, by the way. And sadly, you are statistically far more likely to die from gun violence in this country than you are to even encounter a trans athlete. But despite this reality, conservative propagandists have successfully elevated the salience of this issue to the point where we've seen a sharp increase in the number of Americans who don't want trans athletes to play with cis athletes. Even Democrats saw a seven-point jump, according to this Gallup poll, since 2021, when again, the number of trans athletes is statistically insignificant. But despite the statistical unlikelihood that your child is going to compete with a trans child, well, everybody has been worked into a frenzy to where now these adults are transvestigating children, accusing them of being trans and thus having some sort of an unfair biological advantage simply because of the hairstyle that they have, as was the case with Kelowna. But I don't want to make it seem as if trans athletes are some mythical creatures because they do exist. And their stories are also very important. So let's talk about one trans athlete in the state of Kentucky. Her name is Fisher Wells. She was a seventh grader when she helped form her school's all-female hockey team. Nobody really was playing, but she got her friends together. They created a league for themselves. And when she learned that her state lawmakers were proposing a ban on trans athletes in school sports that would affect her, well, she decided to speak up. And I don't want to share her story. I'm going to let her share her own story because this is important. I'm Fisher Wells, and I would like to tell you my experience um, on the Westport girls field hockey team. Before, um, well, after COVID and we were just getting back in, the girls' field hockey team barely existed. It was just a thing that Westport had that nobody joined because everybody wanted to play, like, volleyball or something. Um, but then, uh, three people signed up. Uh, one of them was me. And I tried my very hardest to get minimum amount of people for the team and we got that and on our first game I got news that I couldn't play and so I didn't play I sat at home um, watching television um, and then I got so many texts from my friends supporting me and then yeah I got these wonderful pictures we tied on that game barely by the way which was fun um, but later it was resolved, and then I started to find out how disgusting the reason I couldn't play was. I really don't want this bill to pass because that means I can't play, and it will be extremely detrimental to my mental health as well. Um, because I know that sports is a great way for me to cope with things. Like, it's just a good way for me to cope with things. Um, and it's why I recovered so very quickly from not being able to play because later, like a few days later, I found out I could play. And I was able to play and have fun and like every, like my coach was crying. Like she was like, oh my God, Fisher. Um, I just, it's disgusting that this bill is even suggested. It's terrible, and I've worked really hard and practiced so many hours. 
Um, I hope you don't vote on this bill, and I hope I can play in eighth grade. Thank you. So I referenced the Associated Press report about how Republican lawmakers couldn't cite any examples of trans athletes causing disruptions at their schools. But in theory, it's much harder to pass a really cruel policy like these trans athlete bans when you see the face of the person who you're going to be affecting, right? And because Fisher is the only known trans athlete in her state, this law would literally just affect her. So she showed up to tell her story and say, please, let me play with my friends. But even though this little girl took the time to explain to Republican lawmakers in Kentucky that the girls' hockey team, one, would not exist without her, and two, that her friends wanted to play with her, do you want to know what those Republicans did? Yes. They voted overwhelmingly in favor of banning her from the team that she helped to create. In fact, they overrode the governor's veto even though they knew the law would affect one child in seventh grade who was hoping to be able to play in eighth grade. Now, maybe Fisher's story resonated with you, maybe it didn't, but I know exactly what you're going to say if you are not inclined to support trans people. You're going to say, Mike, we have to prevent these trans girls from playing with cis girls in order to maintain fairness and protect women's sports. We've heard this a lot, but here's the thing. The people who are passing these laws, they don't actually care about women's sports or girls' sports. And I say this because if they did, then where the fuck is their outrage for things like this? I got something to show y'all. So for the NCAA March Madness, the biggest tournament in college basketball for women, this is our weight room. Let me show y'all the men's weight room. Now, when pictures of our weight room got released versus the men's, the NCAA came out with a statement saying that it wasn't money, it was space that was a problem. Let me show y'all something else. Here's our practice court, right? And then here's that weight room. And then here's all this extra space. If you aren't upset about this problem, then you're a part of it. That was Sedona Prince. She is a female athlete who pointed out the inequities between the men's and women's teams at the University of Oregon. And what she's saying is that this is the problem. And if you care about women's sports, you should care about this. But what do conservatives do? They plug their ears and they point to trans athletes as the problem. Not what actual female athletes are saying are the problems affecting their sports. But as the Human Rights Campaign puts it, the real threat to women's sports isn't transgender athletes. It's underfunding and lack of resources. And this is because women's sports receives far less funding than men's sports on average, with schools spending an estimated 71 cents on women's sports for every dollar they spend on men's sports. And when you look at sports funding across the board, specifically when it comes to travel, equipment, and recruitment, the disparities here are clear. So Kentucky Republicans who banned Fisher Wells from her state's hockey team under the pretense of protecting women's sports, I mean, why haven't they addressed the $7,600 plus disparity in funding between men's sports and women's sports? Other states that we've briefly mentioned here, like Tennessee and South Carolina, are perfectly fine, presumably, with $3,000 and $2,000 differences in funding, respectively, between men and women's sports. But yet they called their sponsoring of anti-trans sports bans them just being proactive. What about being proactive when it comes to the actual problems plaguing women's sports 
And funding is obvious, but really it goes much deeper than funding. It also comes down to how female athletes are treated compared to men. Ali Kirshner, who is a women's coach for Stanford, detailed the differences between male and female athletes at the 2021 March Madness Tournament, and this is what she spoke about. Not only were there notable differences in facilities, but also in food and merchandise as well. In other photos shared by players, there was a visible difference in the caliber and quantity of what was received by the women's teams from the event organizers. Men received enormous swag bags and high-quality food, while the women's teams only received a few merchandise items and lesser quality food. But I mean, the disparities in funding and treatment of female athletes, these have been long documented. But yet, Republicans, they got everyone to believe that it's the trans athletes. They're the ones who are the real danger to women's sports. And this should be obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. These conservatives don't care about women's sports at all, period. They concern troll about fairness in women's sports as a pretense to push transphobia. And that's why they do it. That's why they talk about this. That's why they make movies about it. The goal is to manufacture transphobic beliefs so they can then create a solution to a problem that doesn't actually exist. And they do enjoy cruelty for cruelty's sake, but the primary reason why they do this type of propaganda is to gin up a sort of wedge issue, create culture war hysteria over this issue to drive Republican voters to polls. But unfortunately for them, the recent special elections taught us that transphobia doesn't actually galvanize voters. This was a provable failure electorally speaking so this strategy lacks political efficacy but the problem is that even if it might not help republicans win it still hurts real people it's still toxic and it still creates a climate of paranoia and transphobia which is wrong so i don't know how well this movie is going to do but i hope it fails but i've got to admit that seeing the internet shit on this dumbass faux comedy does make me feel at least a little bit better but hopefully this is money that is wasted by the Daily Wire's billionaire funders, but we'll have to wait and see. Mr. President, if oh you care God. about Jewish people as a rabbi, I need you to call for a ceasefire right now. The video you just watched went viral at the beginning of this month, and you probably have already seen it, but if not, that was Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg interrupting President Biden to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. Now, as you heard, the liberals in attendance were hissing and screaming at her, but she did not back down, and that's because she is a courageous, wonderful human being who has dedicated her life to helping others. She serves as rabbinical counsel for Jewish Voice for Peace, and she also organizes with a Jewish care network for incarcerated people, and on top of that, she's worked with LGBT plus youth. She's just an all-around good person who cares and wants to use her voice for good. Now, since her viral fame, she has met with members of Congress like Ilhan Omar and was even interviewed by CNN about her protest of Biden. But after she went viral for the first time for her courage, she ended up going viral a second time for a completely different reason. For example, stochastic terrorist Chaya Rychik of Libs of TikTok tweeted a screenshot of her interview on CNN writing, man pretending to be a woman also pretends to be a 
rabbi. She then added and is platformed by a site pretending to be news. Now, Riley Gaines, who became an anti-trans influencer after tying with Leah Thomas for fifth place, also chimed in saying, Sir, Halloween was nearly a month ago. And Stella Escobedo of One American News Network tweeted, quote, Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg, who's actually a biological man, interrupts Biden to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Now, additionally, Ali London, who literally spent thousands of dollars in plastic surgery to make himself look Korean, joined the dog pile with the picture of her and Ilhan Omar and added Ilhan Omar with trans rabbi Jessica Rosenberg. Caption this. Now, all of these comments are so disgusting. Mocking somebody for being trans is utterly despicable. And transphobia, like all forms of bigotry, is utterly detestable. And anybody who engages in it is a piece of shit. Trans people are human beings, and they belong just like the rest of us. But the woman that they're harassing for being trans isn't even trans. Jessica Rosenberg is a cis woman with polycystic ovary syndrome, and one of the most common features of PCOS is a hormonal imbalance which can lead to high levels of testosterone, which may cause excess facial or body hair. And this is a condition that 5-10% to 10 of women in the United States have. And Jessica is a queer woman who has made the choice to not shave her facial hair. And I respect that. Not everyone fits perfectly into these gendered parameters established for us by society. I, for one, might look masculine because of my big beard or tattoos, but the second you hear my voice, it's obvious that I'm a flaming homosexual. Now, I could talk like this to come off as more manly, but that would feel really fake and unnatural, so I just choose to be myself. But none of this even matters. Regardless of what we choose and how we choose to express ourselves, it's not of anybody else's business. Jessica chooses to rock her facial hair, and that is her choice and her choice alone. But because of it, smug fuckheads like Megyn Kelly choose to confidently call her a man when they are incredibly wrong. That was, quote, Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg. Jessica is a man pretending to be a woman. And I don't know if she's pretending to be a rabbi, too, but she barely tries to hide the fact that she's a man. She sports a beard. <laughs> she's a bearded, she's a bearded lady, lady reconstructionist rabbi. That was embarrassing. The transphobes who claim they can always tell can't actually tell who is and isn't trans. And after transphobes like Megyn Kelly used her large platform to ridicule somebody who she thought was trans and called her a man, well, predictably, all of the followers of these idiots did the same thing. This person misgenders her and says that she would be one of the first people thrown off of a building in Palestine. Hey, I've seen that comment too from liberals and conservatives. Go get some psychiatric help for yourself. Another person says they can't find a single rabbi to support them who isn't mentally ill. This person says Ilhan Omar honored to meet with bearded transvestite, quote, Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg, a proud Minnesotan. And that's just a couple of examples, but you get the point. People are really fucking cruel, but that's no surprise. However, when it comes to transphobes, I think that they might actually be less mature and more cruel than schoolyard bullies in elementary school. Because I feel like you could actually explain to a child and they would understand. Whereas when it comes to people like Tyra Rychik or Megyn Kelly, these smug dipshits aren't intelligent enough to understand that there are some instances where women might grow facial hair, and it's actually not that uncommon. Now, this is by no means the first time that a cis woman has been the victim of transphobic harassment. Harry Potter star Daniel Radcliffe posted photographs with his fiance, 
And uh, she was accused by transvestigators of being trans because she's taller than him. And also last year, a cis woman was accused of being trans because of her short hair when she was in a woman's bathroom. But I'm gonna let her tell her story. When I walk in the stall and sit down, um, like 30 seconds in, I start to hear this lady like ranting and raving about trans people and it and identities and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, she's probably talking about me. Like when I start recording, I am a little confused because I've never had a problem um, going to the bathroom since cutting my hair short. But um, for some reason, I knew she was talking about me. Are you a man or a woman? Why does that matter? Well, because you're in a ladies' room. Okay. And I have gotten called out several times for being in the men's room. Okay. And you're going to be called out for whatever you're doing. So what are you identifying as today? I don't think that's any of your business. Figure out your identity in your bedroom, uh -huh. okay? okay? And then project it on everybody else and we'll accept it. Uh -huh. This is not acceptable. Let's go get security. Yes, let's, let's do that. Um, she's harassing me for being in the bathroom. What's going on? Well, I'm asking her what her identity is. It's my girlfriend. So hold on, yes, woman. it's your girlfriend. Cool. Yes, so it's yeah, a girl. Have to have doesn't matter. Okay. So the people asking why I didn't tell her what my identity was, it doesn't matter if I'm trans or not. I literally went in there to go to the bathroom to go pee. So the fact that she followed me into the bathroom thinking that I was a trans child to harass me and bully me out of the stall is unacceptable because I was literally going to the bathroom, minding my business. Yeah, and it's not just cis women because children aren't even safe from the transvestigators. Earlier this year, a nine-year-old girl was accosted at a track meet in Kelowna by a grandparent who accused her of being trans. Quote, a grandfather of a student said, hey, this is supposed to be a girl's event and why are you letting boys compete? My daughter is cisgender, born female, uses she, her pronouns. She has a pixie haircut, said mom, Heidi Starr. So understand that transphobia harms cis people too. And that's not even surprising considering the overly hysterical and paranoid climate that's been cultivated by conservatives like Chaya Rychik and Megyn Kelly. Now, I also want to point out that these same transphobes who are mocking Rabbi Rosenberg also happen to support Israel's genocide in Gaza. So they're a bad person for a number of reasons. But I'm not gonna let them distract us from Jessica's core message because what she's saying is important. And her bravery should be commended. So what I want to do is play her interview from CNN where nobody watched it. They just made fun of her appearance because what she said here is really important. She's going to explain why she felt compelled to disrupt Biden's speech to call for a ceasefire. I called for a ceasefire and I continue to call for a ceasefire because we cannot bomb our way to peace. We need a political solution, not a military solution. Palestinians are fighting for equal rights in the land. And as someone who uh, learned from Jewish tradition that all life is sacred, that is what I'm fighting for as well. And that's what I'm calling for a ceasefire. As you know, Rabbi, there are many in the Jewish community dealing with the trauma of the massacre and of course the hostages who have yet to return home. But they're also dealing with anti-Semitic attacks. Perhaps, you know, you have dealt with that as well. We are seeing that just disturbingly across the world. While you're calling for peace, what do you say to people in the Jewish community who are still dealing with all this pain? Well, first of all, we get to grieve. Um, we take all the space and time we need to feel the extreme grief and rage of 
the violence on October 7th um, and to acknowledge all of what comes up when this happens, which is centuries of anti-Semitism um, and killing Palestinians does not honor or bring back any of the lives of Israelis who were lost on the 7th. And I wanna say, I know there's many non-Jews who believe that supporting Israel in this war mm -hmm. is how to stand in solidarity with Jews or even make repair for the atrocities of the Holocaust. And I wanna say that ending anti-Semitism in all the places that Jews live everywhere, that is how you stand in solidarity with Jews. But Hamas, has and continues to be an existential threat to Israel. If your calls for a ceasefire are answered, would you be concerned that that could potentially put more Jewish lives at risk? I'm concerned for Jewish lives and Palestinian lives and all lives and looking towards what is the future we're visioning. It needs to begin with an end to occupation and equal rights for all people in this land. And until we have that, if Hamas is eradicated, a different group will emerge. Like that, that is when people are living without basic rights. Mm. Uh, that is the fundamental threat to safety in the region. And she is exactly correct. Every single Palestinian killed by Israel has surviving family members that may become radicalized as a result of this violence. So long lasting peace necessitates an end to the cycle of violence that we've seen for decades. That's why Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg is calling for a ceasefire. And at the time that I filmed this, Israel and Hamas have actually agreed to a four day pause in fighting to facilitate the release of 50 Israeli hostages and 150 Palestinian prisoners. And while that's objectively good, the fighting needs to stop. For good it can't just resume after four days it needs to end period and the occupation needs to end as well but in conclusion i wanted jessica's message to be louder than the transphobic vitriol that she's experiencing because what she's saying matters and i think it's important that we all do our best to spread her words far and wide but we'll leave that there I think here this is the most important piece of evidence that we have against Hamas here. Uh, as you can see, this is a dress that civilians uh, uh, wear. What is this, you may ask? Hamas tunnels. This is a map of Hamas tunnels. You can see here, they all um, wear it and Hamas finds where the tunnels is. Yeah, I feel like this is just some normal dress design. Are you, are you, I think, Gissimbasarza? Do you want Israel to die? Is this what you're saying? Oh. Cut! Bro, give me another reporter, bro. What the f You just watched a parody of Israeli Defense Force propaganda by Syrian TikToker Taima, and she is one of the thousands of young people to post TikToks criticizing Israel that have gone viral. Now, the pro-Palestinian sentiment that we're seeing from young people on TikTok has led to this manufactured hysteria over the platform, and whether or not it is genuinely brainwashing young people into supporting Palestine and being anti-Israel. So we'll talk about that discourse in this video, and I'll answer that question question as to whether or not it's happening. Spoiler alert, it's not. But before we get to that, let's watch one more clip from Taima. We have uh, the Hamas operation uh, uh, calendar where they switch shifts. It says there's Muhammad, Muhammad right there, and Ahmed. This is Hamas's map of uh, how they want to eradicate us, the ethnic people in our holy land. It says against humanity, against humanity. We are on the front lines. We are saving you. Oh, okay. What happened? What happened? What happened? What's going on? I was trying to get the Where? 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 Did you get that? Did you get that? Did you get oh, that? I don't know 
was scared about the tunnel. Oh, yeah. they weren't here? No, bro. Fuck, I told you. How long oh. have you been there? Are you new? I, You're probably new, <laughs> right? Bro, damn, my God. She is amazing. Now, listen, it's a big platform, right? But still... I don't think it's a stretch to say that the overwhelming majority of young people on TikTok don't support Israel. Specifically, they're against Israel's indiscriminate bombing of innocent Palestinian civilians in Gaza. And rightfully so. I'm glad that they're taking this stance. In fact, Axios reports that pro-Palestine TikToks get far more views than pro-Israel posts based on the hashtag Stand with Palestine and Stand with Israel. Now, the timing is everything because you can see that there was still more sympathy towards Israel following the 10-7 attack. But as time went on and evidence of war crimes emerged and went viral, more and more people began to express sympathy with Palestinians and speak out on their behalf. Now, I think it's important to point out this correlation because there's a coordinated effort to smear all critics of Israel as anti-Semitic and conflate support for Palestinian civilians with support for Hamas. But that's wrong. It's slander. It's a straw man. And that's not what we're seeing on TikTok, contrary to popular belief. In fact, Axios reports TikTok does not allow terrorist content on its platform. Hamas, a TikTok spokesperson confirmed to Axios, is considered a terrorist group by the platform and is banned. So here's what's actually happening. The media can no longer hide what's happening from us like they used to be able to do before. We're seeing first-hand accounts of violence against Palestinians, and in response, there's been a shift in public opinion. We're seeing videos of what is happening in Gaza. And as a result, Israel has ramped up the propaganda in an effort to mislead the public, but they've gotten sloppy in their desperation, and that's also hurt them. They've promoted Pollywood conspiracy theories where they accuse Gazans of faking their injuries and deaths. They've claimed that a calendar was a terrorist roster. They claim to have found a perfectly clean copy of Mein Kampf in a child's living room. And as Alexander Smith of NBC News puts it, all of these information missteps have led to questions about Israel's credibility. Now, to be clear, by information missteps he means lies so if you're an empathetic person who cares about human life and your objective you're very clearly going to be critical of israel here but according to israel's defenders tiktok is to blame for all of the pro-palestinian sentiment now, in the same way that TikTok is apparently turning kids trans, as Charlie Kirk has alleged, they're now turning the kids into Hamas supporters, even though Hamas isn't allowed on the platform and pro-Hamas sentiment will be banned. But don't take my word for it. This is what the ADL CEO had to say about TikTok in leaked audio. This is not a left-right gap, folks. The issue in the United States of support for Israel is not left and right. The Now, to be fair, it's not just him saying this. Several Republican lawmakers have also renewed calls for TikTok to be banned, with them pointing to anti-Israel sentiment as another reason to ban the app. And also, a number of Jewish celebrities have reportedly confronted TikTok executives in a private call, according to the New York Times. They report, the celebrities and creators described, sometimes with fiery rhetoric, how TikTok's tools did not prevent a flood of comments like Hitler was right or I hope you end up 
like Anne Frank under videos posted by them and other Jewish users. Quote, what is happening at TikTok is it is creating the biggest anti-Semitic movement since the Nazis, says Sasha Baron Cohen, who does not appear to have an official TikTok account, said early in the call. He criticized violent imagery and disinformation on the platform, telling Mr. Presser, shame on you and claiming that TikTok could flip a switch to fix anti-Semitism on its platform. Mr. Presser and Mr. Melnick of TikTok, who were also Jewish and based in the United States, were largely conciliatory in the meeting. Obviously, a lot of what Sasha says, there's truth to that, Mr. Presser said, referring to Mr. Cohen's remarks that social media companies needed to take more action. Mr. Presser later said there was no magic button to address all the concerns raised. Deborah Messing, who has more than 37,000 followers on TikTok, pressed executives on TikTok's moderation of the pro-Palestinian slogan, From the River to the Sea, which many Americans regard as a call to eradicate Israel. Now, there were other celebrities that were grilling TikTok executives. Amy Schumer was also reportedly on the call. But to be clear, anti-Semitism is a growing problem around the world, and it absolutely has proliferated on the internet, specifically on social media platforms like Twitter. So I don't want to minimize the reality of that. And I have no doubt that these terrible things are being said and they're also being said on TikTok, and that's unacceptable, and I unequivocally condemn it. Having said that, though, TikTok does far more to police hate speech than any other platform, at least based on my experience, right? But that's not to say that it has successfully eradicated all hate speech because it's there, and it will continue to be there, and they can always do better. But this is not a problem that is unique to TikTok, and I get the sense that this sudden hysteria over TikTok is a manufactured controversy by disingenuous bad faith actors with ulterior motives to push a different agenda. And I say this because one day after Greenblatt condemned Elon Musk for endorsing a viciously anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, he hailed Elon Musk for his, quote, leadership in fighting hate after he announced that he's banning the phrase from the river to the sea on Twitter. Furthermore, Amy Schumer, who was also on this call, is a racist Zionist who attacked people calling for a ceasefire while sharing a comic that called Gazans rapists, not just Hamas, all Gazans rapists. And Sasha Baron Cohen defended her, saying, it is of interest that moment you fight against Jew hate that people come out to destroy you. But more on him in a moment. As for Deborah Messing, she recently spoke at the pro-war rally in D.C. alongside Pastor John Hagee, who once claimed that Hitler was sent by God and blamed Jewish people for the Holocaust. So here's what stood out to me about this article. Some of these celebrities lambasting TikTok executives over anti-Semitism have given a pass to racists and anti-Semites themselves, which makes me doubt their sincerity. And I get the sense that this really isn't about anti-Semitism on TikTok. It's about Israel, right? It's about supporting the governments of Israel. And they just don't like that young people are critical of Israel because they're being exposed to facts about the situation, unlike older generations. That's what I think this is really about. Now, that's not to say that all of them are disingenuously using anti-Semitism as an excuse to try to shut down the conversation around Israel-Palestine. But I think that a lot of these people are doing that. The Republicans are certainly doing that, and I think that a lot of these celebrities on this call are doing that as well. Now, not all of them, though. In fact, of this group of celebrities, I think that Sasha Baron Cohen probably is more genuine since he has the longest history of calling out social media platforms who profit off of hate. In fact, in 2021, Sasha Baron Cohen actually called out Twitter while it was still owned by Jack Dorsey, asking him why they allow the Hitler was right hashtag to exist. But here's the thing. He doesn't even have a TikTok. So 
I don't think that he's in a position to adequately address the climate on TikTok. Furthermore, given his history of calling out bigotry on social media, I do find it absolutely fucking astounding that he's not making Twitter his number one priority. Because Nazis don't just exist on the platform, they thrive, they get boosted by the algorithm if they pay Elon Musk $8 a month. Now, you can still care about TikTok, right? But what I'm saying here, not to be a whataboutism type of person, is that if you care about hatred on social media, I don't know why you would prioritize TikTok over a platform like Twitter. It just doesn't make sense. Or not even equally prioritize them. You just ignore Twitter, at least from what I've seen. It's just, it feels weird to me. But like all social media platforms, TikTok has problems too. I'm not denying that. And my goal isn't to run interference for TikTok. But to suggest that bigotry on TikTok is somehow worse than other social media platforms. Or that the Chinese Communist Party is deliberately using TikTok's algorithm to promote pro-Palestine content to undermine the U.S.'s geopolitical interests in the Middle East is just so fucking unhinged to me right and tiktok responded to these allegations uh, and this headline from vice pretty much sums up the situation tiktok says it's not the algorithm teens are just pro-palestine and the article explains the company wrote in a press release that its algorithm does not take sides but operates in a positive feedback loop the more of a certain type of content a user interacts with the more of that type of content they will be shown on tiktok the videos people view like and share inform the recommendation algorithm about content they might find relevant using these signals the recommendation algorithm creates a prediction score to rank videos to potentially recommend. The effective thrust of TikTok's blog post then is that young people are seeing more pro-Palestine content on the app because that's what they're engaging with. In other words, it's not the algorithm. Teens are just pro-Palestine, as the Vice headline pointed out. And I feel like this is pretty evident if you use TikTok. I mean, if you watch a cat video and you watch it from beginning to end, or maybe you watch it twice, you're going to see more cat videos. The algorithm isn't trying to brainwash you into supporting cats as our new overlords, although I would support that. It's just showing you what you want because it wants to keep you engaged because that's how social media platforms make their money. Now, in their press release, they also outlined ways that they're trying to adapt and actively address the hateful content that they're seeing on TikTok. They're not, they're not denying that it exists, as Elon Musk would do. If you read the press release, they were completely reasonable in saying that they're trying to do better, but it's a work in progress. And they admit that there is fault here, but they also point out public polling data indicates that there was a decline in support for Israel among younger generations that predated TikTok's popularity, and that holds true today as well. And they even point to pro-Palestine sentiment being stronger on Instagram and Facebook. So it is a bit weird weird that they're being singled out and i'm glad that they brought the receipts but i mean they're right of course tiktok is not the cause of pro-palestine sentiment it's just another conduit within which young people can express themselves but of course tiktok is going to defend themselves of course they're going to release a press statement saying that they're innocent they're not necessarily impartial here so i mean if you're not necessarily convinced a better question is what do political scientists say well as nbc news reports quote it would be really easy to blame social media platforms said joshua kurtzer a professor of international studies and government at harvard university you can't draw inferences about the causal effects of exposure on tiktok when people are choosing what to be exposed to in the first place he added noting that tiktok's algorithm tends to show people what they're interested in shock 
Walker. Thomas Zaitsoff, an associate professor of public affairs at American University, said the shift may reflect the influence of the Black Lives Matter movement on some young people's thinking. Some activists have drawn parallels between the treatment of people of color in the United States and the treatment of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. The domestic politics of Israel may also play a role, Zaitsoff said. Netanyahu has openly feuded with Democrats, including then-President Barack Obama, and he heads a right-wing government that has expanded West Bank settlements over the Biden administration's objections. His push this year to overhaul Israel's judiciary sparked mass protests, not only by Israelis, but also by thousands of American Jews. A Pew survey in August found that Americans ages 18 to 29 had low confidence in Netanyahu. Now, to be clear, there are other theories as to why younger people support Palestine more than older generations, but none of those alternate explanations include TikTok, because no serious person actually believes that young people are being brainwashed by TikTok's algorithm into supporting Palestine and being anti-Israel. But I mean, there are a plethora of reasons as to why young people are more inclined to support Israel, and I think that being educated and knowing the facts is why disproportionately there is a power imbalance here this is apartheid one side is oppressed and the other side is doing the oppressing and they can see that thankfully younger people are more sensitive to issues related to racism and settler colonialism and they're against it they want it to stop this is why young people are also called woke but that's a good thing because if you're not awake you're asleep but young people are smart they know the facts, and the same propaganda that used to brainwash older generations is no longer as potent as it is today. And that's a good thing. I think it's good that countries can no longer manipulate the masses with Orwellian lies. Young people aren't anti-Israel because they're anti-Semitic, contrary to popular belief. They're anti-Israel because of the actions of Israel's government that they are aware of because of social media. If they didn't know what was going on, then they would probably just support Israel by default because that's what our media and government tells us to do. But because they can see what's happening, they're aware of what Israel is doing here and their indiscriminate bombings and collective punishment and war crimes and use of white phosphorus. That is why they don't support Israel. So you can try to blame TikTok all you want, but the reality is what is waking people up. We've entered a new era of McCarthyism in the United States where people who use their platforms to speak out on behalf of Palestinian human rights are facing serious repercussions for doing so. For example, actress Melissa Barrera, who starred in Scream 6, has been dropped from the movie Scream 7 after posting this on social media. Quote, Gaza is currently being treated like a concentration camp, she wrote in one post on Instagram stories. Cornering everyone together with nowhere to go, no electricity, no water, people have learned nothing from our histories and just like our histories people are still silently watching it all happen this is genocide and ethnic cleansing now the hollywood reporter adds spyglass the company behind the scream franchise had no comment so her condemning genocide and ethnic cleansing which is generally a good thing i thought got her fired from this movie which she was the star of it's just so absurd but she's not alone this isn't the only high-profile example of this happening this week. In fact, the same day, 
Deadline reported that legendary actress Susan Sarandon was punished as well. Quote, after making controversial remarks at a recent pro-Palestinian rally in New York City, Susan Sarandon has been dropped by UTA as a client, a spokesman from the agency confirmed. The former Oscar winner has been present at several pro-Palestinian rallies where she made several remarks that included, quote, there are a lot of people afraid of being Jewish at this time and are getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim in this country. She also went on to repost on X, a pro-Palestinian post from Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, who has been criticized over the years for his anti-Semitic remarks. Now, I want to parse this out a little bit because when I first read that quote from her, it didn't really sit that well with me because it seemed to me like she was inadvertently minimizing the history of persecution against Jewish people in this country. But I know that that's not what she was intending to do because I'm familiar with her positions, her politics, and her activism. So I assumed that this was one of those instances where she just didn't articulate herself very well. But when you actually listen to the full quote from her and you get the full context, it's clear what she's trying to say, and it is not controversial. There are a lot of people that are afraid, afraid of being Jewish at this time and are getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim in this country, so often uh, subjected to violence. It's important to listen, it's important to have facts. Try to take a breath before you answer. And if it's possible, have a conversation. You don't have to go through the entire history of that region. You can just show the babies that have been dying in incubators, the family and the love that people have for their loved ones when they're blown to pieces. Those images are enough to show you that something is drastically wrong. In other words, Jewish Americans and Muslim Americans are both experiencing a surge in bigotry as a result of what's happening right now. Therefore, it's important to talk to each other to understand the mutual fear that both communities are currently experiencing since they can both relate to the influx of bigotry that's proliferating in this country right now. So when you see her comments in full context, you get a sense of what she's actually trying to say. Yes, she could have and should have worded this better, especially that beginning part, but overall, what she's trying to say is that you should talk to people. Now, Deadline implied that part of the reason why she was fired as well was because of her retweet of Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. Now, I have my criticisms of Roger Waters, but I looked at the tweet in particular that she shared, and it was this five-minute long video that he shared where he simply calls for a ceasefire of both sides, by the way, and starts the video by condemning Hamas's 10-7 attack on Israel. Absolutely nothing that he said in this video was objectionable at all. And if you really wanted to go out of your way to defame Susan Sarandon with this guilt by association strategy, you could have pointed to her retweets of Jackson Hinkle or Jake Shields, both of whom are fascists that happen to be performatively pro-Palestine for clicks. But first of all, that would be bad to do that to her because it's disingenuous. And I don't think that she's as terminally online as the rest of us to know that she's retweeting people who are bad people. She just sees viral posts that they're also sharing and she agrees with them so she's retweeting them and second of all i've made the same mistake as she did right i unwittingly boosted a conservative who shared a pro-palestinian post that i happen to agree with i mean we're all not perfect and there's a lot of stuff online that you see and you don't necessarily think about the implications you just hit retweet it's a very 
small action that doesn't take much thinking. So I think that trying to suggest that she is a bad person because of a retweet of a particular person is a very dangerous game because by that standard, everyone who has a Twitter account is probably a bad person and has at some point retweeted somebody who's bad. But we shouldn't be combing through Susan Sarandon's Twitter profile with a fine-tooth comb to try to find some crumb of controversy to justify her getting dropped by this talent agency. It's completely absurd to do this to her when she has a very clear message Genocide is wrong. I stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. But talent agencies aren't just dropping pro-Palestinian clients. CAA, another massive Hollywood agency, was this close to dropping one of their own agents over a pro-Palestine Instagram post until Tom Cruise stepped in and saved her. Variety explains Maha Dakil, one of CAA's top agents, had ignited a firestorm with her Instagram posts, including one that said, what's more heartbreaking than witnessing genocide, witnessing the denial genocide is happening. In response, Dakil was removed of her duties as co-chief of the motion pictures department, though she was allowed to remain an agent. It didn't hurt that her most important client, Tom Cruise, made it known to CAA that he was backing her. Cruz met with Dakil at her CAA office on November 15th. A knowledgeable source says he took the rare step of going in person to show support for his embattled agent. So we're seeing a pattern. If you oppose genocide, you may actually face severe repercussions. But if you support genocide, there's no punishment whatsoever. For example, Sarah Silverman shared this post on Instagram defending Israel's collective punishment against Gazan civilians. And weeks later, she went on to guest host The Daily Show for a week. Furthermore, none of the celebrities who spoke alongside notoriously anti-Semitic pastor John Hagee at the pro-war rally are being blacklisted. So we're seeing this double standard and it's wrong. But celebrities only represent the tip of the iceberg because there are dozens, possibly hundreds of ordinary people like journalists and students with no fame and little money who are going to feel the effects of this new McCarthyist era the most. This includes Jasmine Hughes and Jamie Lauren Keels of the New York Times who are both forced to resign after signing a petition calling for the liberation of Palestinians. David Valesco, an editor at Artform magazine, was fired for signing the same petition. Michael Eisen, the editor-in-chief of the journal Science, who happens to be Jewish, was fired for liking a satirical tweet from The Onion with the headline, Dying Gazans Criticized for Not Using Last Words to Condemn Hamas. Jackson Frank, a sports writer, was fired from his job at Philly Voice for tweeting solidarity with Palestine. Law students have had job offers from universities rescinded. And I think that this headline from a now-deleted MarketWatch article really says it all. Yes, you can be fired for political speech, so choose your words about Israel, Palestine, Trump, and Biden very carefully. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. But those who haven't yet been penalized could be penalized soon because this McCarthyist sentiment is continuing to spread. And I want to show you one of the worst examples that I've seen of the paranoia that is being propagated. So the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, he called for the government to literally investigate students on national television because they may possibly be supporting Hamas materially. The college campuses are on fire right now. The ADLs tracked 832 incidents across the country, almost 30 a day over the month after the Gaza Is the president's attacks. program enough to try to counteract that? Uh, look, the president has been strong and supportive, and we are so appreciative of that, but we need more. 
We need the Department of Education to take proactive action to get these universities to do something. There have been good signs, but we need more. I'll also tell you, we need the right governmental authorities, like the IRS and the FBI, to make sure that the national organizations aren't providing material support for Hamas, which is a foreign terror organization. That needs to happen right away. So the IRS and the FBI should investigate student organizations to make sure that they're not providing material support to Hamas on grounds that they, what, made pro-Palestine Instagram posts, went to a pro-Palestinian protest? I mean, what are we doing here? It's not enough that 38 states have unconstitutional BDS laws that require contractors to sign loyalty pledges to Israel to get state contracts and avoid being blacklisted. But now he's suggesting that we should use government agencies to investigate students for possible pro-Hamas material support. Have we lost our fucking minds? I mean, with this trajectory, how long until we start saying, oh, well, these same organizations that should be investigating students, they've been infiltrated by the pro-Hamas people as well. I mean, this is where McCarthyism went, right? Everyone was a communist. And then also the U.S. Army was a communist. And it got so absurd that the hysteria just wasn't potent any longer. But I mean, are we all collectively okay with another round of McCarthyism? Because I, for one, do not consent to that. And in an op-ed for Newsweek, Nathan J. Robinson, who was also fired for pro-Palestinian speech from The Guardian years ago, gives us a look at the parallels between the McCarthy era and today. He writes, let's recall the McCarthy era or second red scare in American politics. It's generally looked back on today as a shameful period of political persecution and its lessons should always be kept in mind, notably during the McCarthy years it was not just government prosecutions that created such a stifling environment of paranoia and censorship. People suspected of being communists could and did lose their jobs. In fact, as Ellen Schrecker explains in the age of McCarthyism, job loss was much more significant as a form of repression than outright state censorship. People didn't fear going to jail nearly as much as they feared getting fired. And once again, it seems like history is repeating itself. It seems like the ghost of Joseph McCarthy has possessed a lot of people in positions of power currently. And we're just making the same mistake that we did during the Cold War. And it is really humiliating and frustrating that we never seem to learn from the mistakes that we said we would never repeat as a society. But at the end of the day, I think that these celebrities being penalized, even if they have a lot of money and a lot of power, their stories are important seeing these high-profile examples of celebrities being penalized over pro-Palestinian speech matters because these stories help to raise awareness about the severity of the level of censorship we're seeing. If celebrities are being penalized, the people in society that we revere the most, then certainly ordinary Americans are also going to be penalized as well. But my ultimate sympathies lie with the normal folks who are losing their jobs, the people who are law students who had their job offers rescinded for vocalizing support for Palestinian human rights. These people don't have fame. They don't have power. They don't have money. But here's what I want to leave you with. Nobody should ever be penalized for condemning genocide. It is good that people have the instinct to condemn genocide. That shows that we still have our humanity as a society and people shouldn't have to bite their tongues to appease their tyrannical employers having a negative reaction to violence on this level that we're seeing in gaza that makes you human you're a normal person if you see that and you feel something 
And to think that people are being punished for expressing human emotions over this is just downright despicable. And I think that we all should condemn it. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.